We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're continuing to move verse by verse through the books, uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And this time, we are looking at the restrainer and the strong delusion. 2 Thessalonians 2, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 12. So if you're new to us, what we normally do is we locate the, the biblical text and then we stand. If you're able to stand, go ahead and stand to your feet and we'll read the text together. 2 Thessalonians 2, we'll begin at verse 6. It reads this way, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. The restraining idea goes back to this man of lawlessness that we looked at last time, mentioned in verse 3 and 4. Paul says, There's a restraining influence that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery, verse 7, of lawlessness, tying back to the man, is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearing or the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. You may be seated. Father, as we uh, consider a very uh, difficult passage on many levels, one that's had a lot of different interpretations and one also that is difficult in terms of just the sobering uh, reality of it. But we live in a sobering time, so this should not shock us. And the church has dealt with a lot of difficulty over the years with different leaders that have risen up and persecuted the church. And this is a day where we've gotten a taste of it in America. But there is a restraining influence that is keeping this man of lawlessness from uh, making his appearance. When he appears, it will only be for a brief time. He will be slayed by the ultimate warrior, Jesus Christ. And we're grateful for that. And we need a special uh, anointing, Lord, this morning, understanding of your word. So would you help us open our eyes, help us to understand your word, to uh, uh, cut it straight, to uh, exegete it properly, we might say, so that we have proper understanding, and also give us the application so that we can walk out of here applying your word as well. So we lay this time at your feet. We pray that we'd have ears to hear what your spirit says to your church in these days. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. I wanted to take a few moments before I jump into dividing the text and tell you about a couple of stories that are going on. I could tell you a lot of stories, but I got an email from Matt Staver from the Liberty Council, and he's telling a story about a Romanian church, and here's what he says. He says, Michael, eight months after Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker's two weeks to flatten the curve announcement, And this is Staver talking now. The wayward governor is returning parts of Illinois to the harsh restrictions that have killed the state's economy, robbed its citizens of their most basic rights. Curiously, with just 
one week to go before the biggest election in our lifetime, and just two weeks after we submitted our case defending Elam Romanian Pentecostal Church of Chicago to the Supreme Court for full review. These rollbacks on freedom are only imposed on the conservative and swing voting counties of the state. Interesting. Beginning Friday, October 23rd, 2020, DuPage, Kane, Will, and Kankakee counties, along with 20 additional counties in, in Illinois' conservative Region 5, were forced to return to Phase 3 shutdowns, limiting all the gatherings to 25 people or less. Pastor Christian says growing up in communist Romania was like living inside of a tightening noose. The courageous pastor who barely survived communist persecution sees the same noose tightening here in America. In Romania, the communists use widespread propaganda and violent campaigns to put the whole society in fear. Then the communists would engage in a series of increasingly drastic measures designed to force compliance. Pastor Ionescu says the actions of Illinois Governor and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot chillingly resemble the very same oppression he and his parishioners suffered in communist Romania. I don't have time to give you the whole article, but he said they used fear. And uh, in this case, he, he's talking about the COVID-19 uh, fear, which, you know, we know the virus is real, but here's what he says. He says, the Romanian Pentecostal Church willingly closed out of abundance of caution for its parishioners, as well as in respect for the two weeks to flatten the curve announcement by Illinois officials. But when Pritzker later announced that secular services like big box retailers, marijuana stores could open, but churches would likely be severely restricted for one year or more, Elam Romanian Pentecostal Church said enough. They opened. Then the bullies, using Staver's words, blocked access to the church's parking lot. They began to tow cars away to make uh, neighbors around the church angry at the church. So they were towing cars away all around the church property. Then they threatened Pastor Ionescu's freedom. They charged him with disorderly conduct. But his only crime, in quotes, was opening the church with more than 10 people attending because the pastor obviously saw the need of a society that is hurting and broken. And so he was trying to fight the good fight for his people. Then they threatened to seize and destroy all church property. Uh, then they offered to meet with him, but when he said he wanted to meet only with representation or counsel, then they canceled the meeting. Now, I could tell you more stories, but I'm going to tell you one more about a church, a Calvary Chapel in San Jose. It's called Calvary Chapel San Jose. It's pastored by Mike McClure. Right now, as we stand here this morning, the county of Santa Clara has uh, levied $350,000 worth of fines to Calvary Chapel San Jose, all because they decided, by God's leading, praying through it, that they wanted to open. Nobody's, by the way, when a church opens, nobody's forced to come to church. Most of these churches are live streaming. Most of these churches have options to sit outside. But now they've levied $350,000 against Mike McClure. Now, I just want you to think about that number for a church that's just simply trying to minister to the people who want to come 
and come into the building and be ministered to. And I have on my Facebook page, if you want to check it out, a 45-minute press conference. Uh, Pastor Mike is being represented by Robert Tyler, who's representing many churches right now. There's a 45-minute press conferences, conference with many different pastors speaking on Mike's behalf, pastors from the area, pastors that flew in just for the press conference. I would encourage you to listen to what they say because it will answer a lot of your questions. If you're struggling with what to do and what's really going on and what's happening with the church right now, watch this press conference because it will bring to light a lot of issues where people are confused and what's really going on and is this real and our church is really being you know, given fines and stuff like this. They are. This is happening right now. And this is really crazy in this country for this to be happening. So my prayer is that the church would stand together, you'd be praying, and I'll tell you, uh, I am concerned about which way this election is going to go and the resulting consequences of that election. And I'm not just talking about the presidency, I'm talking about local elections as well. And I said in the video, elections have consequences. You and I have the ability to choose our leaders. And if you are an evangelical Christian and you stay home and you don't vote and then you want to cry and complain when things aren't going the way that you would hope that they go, this is the opportunity. So my encouragement to you is you have a privilege in this country to vote. Please vote. All right. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, just to let you know, we are going to do two prayer meetings on election night from 6 to 7 in the church office and our normal Wednesday night prayer meeting from 6 to 7. So those are happening. Those are one-hour prayer meetings. You will not know anything at 6 p.m. on election night. You all know that, right? You'll be waiting for a while. You may know something late into the wee hours of the morning, maybe. But who knows this year, right? So I would encourage you to come and pray. We need to pray, amen? And then we do always do a Wednesday night prayer meeting from 6 to 7, and I would love for more of you to come to that. We do have a midweek service, and I would encourage you to come to that. Also, you men, there is a men's breakfast. It wasn't mentioned. It's always the first Saturday of the month, unless there's something going on like a holiday. And it is this coming Saturday, and it will begin at 8 a.m., and it's a great time to fellowship with other brothers in the Lord. If you're flying solo as a man... And you don't have any Christian friends, you don't have any brothers in the Lord, you don't go to a Bible study, you're cutting yourself short, man. You need to get into fellowship, and this is one way to do it. It happens every month on the first Saturday of the month. We get you out of here by 10 a.m. So you can do all your honeydew list, and you'll still be all right. <laughs> the Restrainer and the Strong Delusion. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6, Paul writes, And you know, he's writing to the church at Thessalonica, what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery, the Greek word there is mysterion, a sacred secret often referring to something about Christ that's hidden in the Old Testament or and then revealed in the New. Something about the church hidden in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. Here, this secret may not be categorized as sacred, but it is a mystery. There's a mystery of lawlessness that's already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Uh, some say you could render this until he is taken out of the middle or the midst. 
This is the famous passage about the restrainer. Who is the restrainer? I heard one pastors say that there's 40 different views of who the restrainer might be. <laughs> well, that I can tell you, I've done a lot of research on this for a lot of years, and I can tell you I'm going to try to boil this down to a handful, uh, but I do believe that you're going to hear some things that are kind of interesting and maybe new to you in terms of who this restrainer may be. What we do know is that this restraining influence is rendered in both the neuter and the masculine. So it seems to be a uh, kind of a non-personal entity and then have a leader, uh, a male leader, if you will, a masculine leader. And I'll dig that out in a second. But this particular restraining principle or person is withholding something. And what it is withholding or holding back or standing in the way of is the revealing of this man of lawlessness. Now, just to remind ourselves where we've been, Paul has been talking about the day of the Lord, which I believe is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, just as another way to say it. He says, of the day of the Lord, look at uh, end of verse 2, that the day of the Lord has come. People are saying that it's come. They've written letters. Maybe there was a prophecy. Let no one, verse 3, in any way deceive you. For it will not come, the day of the Lord will not come, unless two things come first. We studied this last Sunday. If you weren't with us, you can go back and listen to it. Two things. The apostasy, we talked about that word being a defection, probably a religious defection from a previously held position. And most would argue here we're going to have a defection from Christianity. Near the end of time or near the second coming, we're going to have a revolt. Many people walk away from a previously confessed position. The apostasy or the defection or you could say the rebellion. That's one thing. Two, the, and the man of lawlessness, and these seem to go together, and the man of lawlessness may be responsible for many people's defections, is revealed. He's called the son of destruction or the son of perdition. A little bit more about him. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He wants to be deified, if you will, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, there's a couple of Old Testament passages that are kind of interesting in this regard. Most people take these as prophecies about Satan. They're found in Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12 and right uh, up to about verse 15 in Ezekiel 28. In the historical context, they apply to the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. But as you walk them out, they have a dual meaning. And many believe that they apply to Satan himself, who wanted to exalt himself above the stars of God, who wanted to be looked at as God, who wanted worship. And this has been true even in the Roman Empire, once the Roman Empire began to unfold, they practiced something called emperor worship. This is where a lot of Christians actually got in trouble in the Roman world, was they refused to worship the emperor or to call the emperor Lord. And many of them were persecuted because of it up till really the time of Constantine. Uh, so you had a lot of persecution going on because Christians refused to call anybody else Lord but the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul went into Thessalonica... We studied this when we began the books in Acts 17. 
the accusation against Paul and his missionary partners were that they were saying that there was another king, namely Jesus. And in the Roman Empire, they would put up with a lot of stuff. They let a lot of religious persuasions go on. But if you began to threaten sedition against the emperor, that's when you were in trouble. If you started to say that there was another king besides Caesar, you would get yourself in big trouble. And so some believe that Paul is a bit obscure in who the man of lawlessness is and the restraining influence because of the threat of the Roman Empire. Some scholars say, why was Paul not direct? For example, a major view, if you've been around, uh, like for example, Calvary Chapel circles for the last 20, 40 years, is that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit or the, the Holy Spirit working in the church. And that's been a major view. And uh, they would say something like this, well, if that was the case, why didn't Paul just say it? Why didn't Paul just say, the Holy Spirit is the restraining influence working in the church? Why is he obscure in his language? And some people think that he's obscure because of the threat of Rome and because the existence of Rome itself may tie to this whole idea of the man of lawlessness and the restrainer. Some of you know that there's a whole view called preterism that believes that all of these prophecies or the bulk of them have happened in the past. And some people believe that Nero was the beast or the Antichrist. And that all of these things, largely, or I should say the large portion of the book of Revelation And some of these references were fulfilled either at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 or as time unfolded in the Roman Empire, which officially, scholars would say, ended in 476 AD. And uh, the Dark Ages is put between 500 and 1500. That's when you have the rise of the Roman papacy. And I'm sorry if I'm using a lot of technical terms for some of you, but I think a lot of you have heard this before. This is where you had the rise of the Roman Catholic Church led by the papal structure or the Pope. And Pope means father. And so the Pope was seen as carrying on the ministry of Peter who was considered by the Roman Catholic Church the first Pope, which is not grounded in a whole lot of fact at all. But they think that there's been successions from Peter and that's why the Pope is called the Vicar of Christ. And I could give you quotes right now. Some of the, the quotes are debated and controversial where popes have stood up throughout history and essentially claimed to be God. I'm, I'm talking about quotes where they actually say they are God on the earth. So some interesting, scary stuff. And in fact, uh, let me. Uh, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but I'll just tell you uh, the historic view of the restrainer and the man of lawlessness, the first three centuries of the church, pretty much unanimous was that it was the Roman Empire and that the empire was the neuter in the language, kind of a a non-personal. So the empire itself is the neuter and the masculine, he uh, is the emperor. And so there was unanimity among the early church. Names like Tertullian, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, all believed that this was the case. But of course, the, uh, the end did not come in the Roman Empire, right? And then Constantine rose up and it largely became Christianized and history unfolded. And then as the reformers came along, 
Names like Martin Luther and Tyndale and others. They began to say that the Roman Catholic structure, and I'm, I want to be careful to tell you that there's a, there are a lot of good Roman Catholic people who are in churches today that are born again, wonderful, precious saints of God. I'm just going to give you history. I'm not trying to bash anybody here, just so you guys all know. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. I, I was given a foundation in the church. I think there's some ro- things wrong in it, uh, doctrinally and otherwise, but there's some things wrong in the evangelical church as well. <laughs> so, so let me just clarify that. But what happened was a lot of power was put into the Pope. And, and so what happened it, over history is that the Reformers believed that the Pope's were largely the representation of the man of lawlessness, and uh, they were damaging the church. In fact, I said at second service last week that rough estimates are between 500 and 1500 A.D., the Roman Catholic papal structure, not all of them, killed 50 million Christians. So I want you to think about that for a second. 50 million Christians were killed over a period of 1,000 years by the Roman Catholic papal structure. You say, why? Because they were trying to get Bibles into the common man's hands. Because they were questioning the authority of the whole structure. And so the Reformers began to say that the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist is that whole structure And, of course, the Roman Catholics began to say that Luther and the Lutherans were the Antichrist. (laughs) So this is the way history has unfolded. And this this was a major perspective in the early church. Paul had seen to tell, verse 6, the Thessalonians already in person what this was. He said, you know what restrains, if you have a King James, what withholdeth him now so that in his time he may be revealed. The word restrains is uh, K-A-T-E-C-H-O in the Greek. It's neuter in verse 6 and masculine in verse 7. For the mystery, and this is clouded in some mystery, of lawlessness is already at work, only, notice, he who now, there you have the masculine, restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way or taken out of the middle. So this man of lawlessness who's going to make an appearance is being restrained. And so uh, I mentioned to you that there were people like Justin Martyr, Hippolytus, Hippolytus, Tertullian, Cyril of Rome, Jerome, who wrote, who translated the Latin Vulgate, Ambrose, Chrysostom, all held this view. The consensus of the reformers, Luther, Huss, Calvin, Tyndale, and others, all held that it was the Roman Catholic Church led by the papacy. And uh, you're going to see in a moment that there's going to be counterfeit miracles that happen. And some have argued, and I'm, I'm not convinced that this view is right, but I'm just laying it out to you so you're aware, that there have been uh, at least alleged miracles within the Roman Catholic Church and in order to become a saint, you had, have to have done at least one miracle. And you guys have heard some of the different spots where miracles alleged to have happened. The more recent one I can think of is uh, apparent manifestations of the Virgin Mary in Medjugorje, Yugoslavia, 
They've been investigated by the Catholic Church, by the Evangelical Church. There's these kids that said that the Virgin Mary floating off the ground began to appear to them. They called her the Madonna. And uh, unfortunately, as the apparitions went on, the appearances or alleged appearances of this entity, the entity began to tell these young people that all religions lead to God and that you just have to be sincere and whatever you believe is okay. And you can see how problematic that is. So whenever anything happens, we have to measure it by our Bible. Now, um, I mentioned to you there's, a, there's been a major view that's gone around. It was popularized by somebody named Darby, who really was involved with something called dispensationalism. And he, he believed that the Roman Empire was the fourth beast and that the Antichrist would come out of that empire. But he said, at the bottom, the presence of the church and the Holy Spirit on the earth is the restraining influence. Some believe that the restrainer, keeping this man of lawlessness from being revealed, and most would equate him with the Antichrist, is the rule of law, generally speaking, just law itself, Roman law or some other law, to keep order. Some believe, I'm giving you just a handful of the major views, that the restrainer is God or the angels delaying the coming of Christ. Some have suggested the Father or the Holy Spirit is, is the restrainer. An angel makes more sense for how could God be removed or taken out of the way? That seems odd. Some believe that the restraining factor was the preaching of the gospel and that the restrainer was the apostle Paul using the neuter and the masculine, the preaching of the gospel and Paul being the masculine. Jesus did say in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel must be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. So some people believe that. B.B. Warfield thought that it was the Jewish state. Some believe it's the church. And finally, some believe that maybe an evil power or Satan is holding sway on this mystery of lawlessness being revealed since he is Satan's agent. Interesting. lot to consider, right? Some of your heads already hurt. You already need a donut. You already need a cup of coffee. I, I feel you. I've been studying this stuff for a long time, so my head hurts as well. But there is a restraining influence keeping back this man of lawlessness. I've, over the years, I've played a lot of racquetball, and I'll give you an illustration so you might kind of grasp the concept. In racquetball, there's something called a hinder. And if you are on the racquetball court and you have a clean shot and another player steps in front of your clean shot, you call a hinder. If you don't like the person, you hit the ball anyway. <laughs> I remember some years ago, I was playing with a guy from the church. He's a great guy. He was newer to racquetball. He was wearing these little short tennis shorts. And uh, Pastor Michael tends to hit all balls relatively hard. Racquetballs, golf balls, they don't always go where I intend them to go, but I swing hard. It's just my, in my nature. So he had set up in front of me, and I hit a shot, and I was looking away, and right when I hit it, I went, oh no, and it hit him right in the back of the thigh. He had, for the next six months, about every color on the spectrum that manifested in his leg, and I had to see him every Sunday, and he would come with a different limp every week. <laughs> and he would show it to me. Look what you did to me. Hey, it changed. It's a different shade of this now. I'm like, whoa. 
I said, well, if you wouldn't have hindered me, <laughs> it's your fault. It's not my fault. This is the concept of the hinder. Something is in the way from something else happening, just simply put. And that is the, the idea. I want to show you something that's kind of interesting and it's something I've dug out over the years. Um, and it's found in the book of Daniel. And as you turn there, hold your place in 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to look at a few parallel passages. Here's what I want to show you. There is a view that says that the restrainer is an angel, namely Michael. I like him. But anyway, that's not relevant here. But This is Daniel 10, verse 12. Then he said to me, don't be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding, Daniel 10, 12, this, and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, a demonic power, was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, the archangel here, one of the chief princes, interesting description, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I've come to give you understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Now skip down to verse 21 for the sake of time. However, I will tell you that what is inscribed in the writing of truth, yet there is no one who stands firmly, the word means who restrains or stands strong with me against these forces, against except Michael, notice what he's called, Michael, your prince. Now, whose prince is Michael? Well, Michael is the prince for Israel. And you may not have seen this before, but it would seem as we study angels and we study the idea of principalities and powers that they have regional responsibilities. And this is a whole different study I can't get into now. But it would appear that Michael's regional responsibility is Israel. And notice how this unfolds. We're going to go all the way to Daniel 11. We'll pick it up, the very last verse of 11 into 12. And he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion. Many believe that this is the Antichrist. Between the seas, that would be the Mediterranean and Dead Seas, and the beautiful holy mountain, that's the temple mount. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Now at that time, and I believe here in the middle of the last seven, seven years, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, notice this confirms his role, he stands guard over Israel, will arise. That word arise in the New American Standard is amad in Hebrew, A-M-A-D. The word tra is translated stand still or cease to guard. At that time, I believe in the middle of the 70th week, Michael will stop his restraining influence. And, notice, there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. 
these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, there is no doubt that the passage I just shared with you, moving into Daniel 12, is the last day's passage because it specifically talks about the resurrection. And I will tell you this, with all the conjecture about the identity of the restrainer, I just showed you a parallel passage that is a pretty strong passage that the restrainer may well be Michael, the archangel, at least restraining anything happening terribly in Israel where we believe that the major issues will be happening in the last days. Amen? Anyway, you don't have to agree with me, but I find it compelling because the other views that I've heard, even though largely held by the early church or picked up by the reformers back to 2 Thessalonians, uh, doesn't mean they're right. Now, they could be right. But it could well be Michael. That Michael is holding back. Remember, he even has the power to defeat Satan in Revelation 12, I believe. And so he's, he's been uh, doing some sort of restraining if that view is correct. Whatever the correct view is, what we do know is that there's some restraining influence that could be rendered both neuter and masculine that is holding back the revealing of this man of lawlessness. This mystery of lawlessness back in chapter 2, verse 7, has already been working, just like the uh, Antichrist has already been in the world and will ultimately be manifested in, in a final Antichrist. But there's a restraining influence, and he will restrain end of seven until he is taken out of the middle or out of the way, until... He steps aside. Now, here's what will happen. And then, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, after the restrainer steps aside, that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord, that's Jesus, will slay or consume or overthrow with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end or destroy by the appearance of his coming. The word appearance there is the Greek word epiphania. The word coming is parousia or parousia, the word for the second coming. I don't know how you can think or come to the conclusion that this already happened in history, like in the Roman Empire, for example, if the man of lawlessness will ultimately be destroyed by the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody with me? So I, I believe that you have to have a future reality of this, even if you've had some sort of manifestations of some of this in the past, in some ways, ultimately this has to be a second coming reality because Jesus is going to slay the dragon, if you will, by the brightness of his coming. Amen? And that's the really good news is that whoever this person is, and remember I told you last week we got to be careful. We don't try to pin the tail on the Antichrist, right? But the world is ripe for this kind of leader to arise right now. Things are in place where it wouldn't shock me at all. The world has shrunk. The whole world is suffering. Uh, the uh, economic systems of the, wor of the world are interdependent. Many countries are falling apart as a result of COVID. It, it wouldn't be beyond uh, imagination at this point. Israel's back in the land. They're making plans to rebuild a, a temple. Look, Folks, I'll just tell you this. I don't know when this is going to happen, but I would just keep your eyes open 
And this is not a good time to be playing around with your walk with Jesus Christ. It's never a good time, but I would say now's not a good time either. And this is a time to have your eyes open and to ask the Lord for discernment. Amen? For discernment. Because the American church has largely been asleep. And I have to tell you, I'm going to get on my hobby horse here for a second. Because pastors have placated to the people. Many people have no clue. They've never heard what I'm talking about. And they're never going to hear it on a Sunday morning. Because we're too busy trying to make them feel good about themselves. You're okay. We're okay. We're all okay. Say it again. You're okay. We're okay. We're all okay. Bling. We're, it's like, okay, look. There's a place for encouragement, not here, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're like, when do you do it, Pastor Michael? Okay, look, the next section, I'll have some encouragement for you. Please come back next Sunday. I'll encourage you, I promise. I'll smile a lot. But right now, <laughs> I'm dealing with the text. You want to know it? Here it is. This is what Paul says. The good news, hey, I got some good news for you. Jesus Christ is going to destroy this character. Destroy means he will make him null and void. He will make him idle. His coming will be so bright, this guy will melt in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This guy's a phony. He'll make his appearance, but only for a quick moment. Isaiah 11.4 says, But with righteousness he will judge the poor, speaking of Messiah, decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, Isaiah 11.4. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Revelation uses the same sword picture coming out of the Lord's mouth, destroying his enemies. Detailed picture of it is in Revelation 19. It's too good not to turn there. We're going to go quickly. Revelation 19, towards the end of your Bibles. Take a look. Jesus is depicted as coming on a war horse. This is an end times uh, scene. It's beautiful just to read it, and it goes in concert with 2 Thessalonians 2, what we just read. Revelation 19.11 says, I saw heaven open. Revelation 19.11. Behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages war. Revelation 19.12. His eyes are a flame of fire. Upon his head are many diadems or crowns. He has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations." He will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in the mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and, all, and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men, slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. 
and the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet, we, we studied this last time in Revelation 13, who performed signs in, the, in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. All right, back to 2 Thessalonians 2. <laughs> the Lord is going to judge the living and the dead at his appearing and by, by his appearing and at his kingdom. 2 Timothy 4.1. Paul says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the, Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all those who love his appearing. So the appearing of Jesus is going to be when he vanquishes his enemies and rescues his people and vanquishes his enemies. Verse 9, 2 Thessalonians 2. Now a little bit more about this man of lawlessness. That is, the one who's coming, that is the same word parousia or parousia in Greek, of the second coming of Jesus. It's his revealing, if you will, in a different way. The one who's coming is in accord with the activity or the word is power or energy of Satan. Notice what he will do. With all power, Greek word dunamis, and signs, these are false signs, and false wonders, Greek word pseudos, where we get the word pseudo, lying wonders. This man will have power, but his power will be satanic. He will be performing deceptive signs so as to dupe the world. Listen to Matthew 24. Just write it down for your notes. 24 and 25, Jesus says, last day's context. False Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. Matthew 24 24 and 25. And so we have now this uh, imposture, this false Christ. He comes with all deception, 10, of wickedness for those who perish. Because, why do people perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. The truth is, is in Jesus. If you will not receive Jesus into your life, you will perish. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. They will have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But this is the condemnation. That men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's why they won't come to the light. That's why they push the truth away. And you're going to see a verse that could be troubling because it's going to talk about God sending a strong delusion. But I want you to see verse 10, that this is a human decision. God is sovereign, but there's human decision here. Because these people who perish would not receive, the word is welcome, it implies welcome here. They would not receive the love of the truth. 
He came to his own, John 1, 11 and 12, but his own would not receive him. But to as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. Amen? Amen. This is salvation. You must receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you don't receive him, he is, Jesus is salvation. That's what his name means. Yahweh is salvation. That's Jesus. If you won't receive God's means of salvation, then you'll be judged, simply put. And the judgment will be the law of God. And I just say, rot's a ruck. Lots of luck. <laughs> if you need the interpretation. <laughs> no less than Calvin said, those who perished were deserving of it, nay, more did their own accord choose death. They chose it. They chose to reject the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says they would not obey the gospel and they paid the penalty of eternal destruction. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1.18. But to us who are being saved, the word of the cross, the gospel, is the power of God. But the gospel is veiled to many people. They've been blinded. Blinded by sin, blinded by the enemy. And here is a sobering verse. And we're winding down, I promise. And for this reason, because they would not receive the love of the truth, verse 10, God will send upon them a deluding influence. If you have an NIV, it says a powerful delusion so that they might believe what is false. There's a definite article here in the Greek, literally the lie, the pseudos, what is false. Because they would not receive the love of the truth, that's the reason, beginning of 11. God sends them a powerful delusion, and they believe the lie. I'll tell you what, that is sobering. Because it says that at some point in history, and I would fast forward this, this to the last days, people who reject the gospel will be given a delusion from God himself so that they cannot believe. And nobody ever would want to be at that point, right? Where God says, okay, if this is what you're going to do, I'm going to confirm you in your lostness. Now, I'm running out of time, but I'm going to give you a parallel passage to consider, and you might want to read it this week. It's Romans 1, 24 through 32. And many of you have studied this before here, but here's what it says. When people move to idolatry, they reject God, they believe evolution, you name it. They worship false gods, they go into abased sexual practices. Three times in Romans 1, 24 through 32, it says God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them up, you could render it. And God at some point says to people, if you want to do it your way, then I'm going to give you over to your sin." And you're going to become so hard-hearted, it's going to be hard for you to believe. Now, here's something that I find hope in. And I'll just back up for a general principle. The prodigal son, the father let him go, right? You want to go? Go. But when he came to his senses in the filth of his sin, what did he decide to do? He came back home. Now, the last day scenario that I painted for you that's in our scriptures here is only going to matter to the last generation that deals with it. Every other generation 
has to decide whether or not you want to follow Christ. Amen? Whether, whether or not you want to believe the lie and live in the lie and spend your whole life in rebellion, or if you want to find true life in Christ, find true meaning. And that is probably going to be, obviously, the truth that is most important to most people. And they believe what is false. Write this down. This is Isaiah 66.4 in the New King James. God says of his people, So I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. This is Isaiah 66.4. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. New King James, Isaiah 66.4. They wouldn't hear me when I called, so I'll choose their delusions for them. Now this is an interesting consideration. But in 1 Kings 22, a lying spirit goes out from the Lord because people want to hear lies, so God says I'll confirm them in the lie. An evil spirit went out from the Lord to terrorize Saul in 1 Samuel 16, 14 because he would not obey God. And there are some interesting passages where God, and it, it's somewhat surprising, he confirms people in the lie. And that is a boundary that no one should ever want to cross. And that is what we see in biblical revelation. And here's the result. In order that they all may be judged, condemned, who did not, what? Believe the truth, but rather they took pleasure in wickedness. It takes us right back to Romans 1, 18 through 32. For them, says Morris, evil has become good. And here we have a picture of the final judgment, the separation of the wheat from the chaff, the uh, wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. And if you receive the love of the truth, all you got to do is receive it as a gift. You're saved. How beautiful is that? It's already paid for, already signed, sealed, delivered. You just got to say, okay, Lord, thank you. And you're saved. Why do we make it so difficult? Because the world is filled with lies because we do have an enemy. And here I look out at a room of a group of people that I know is a very thankful group. Amen? Because you know what you were saved from and saved unto. And this is the good news of the gospel that we proclaim. Salvation is of the Lord. And Father, we're going to take the elements that remind us of the great price that was paid for our salvation, namely the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, him bearing the weight of my sin. How blessed is the man or woman whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. What a blessing. David wrote that after he had sinned with Bathsheba and he talked about the gospel. How blessed is this group of people that are Christians, whether watching by live stream or here personally, how blessed our transgression is forgiven. Our sin has been sent away. It's not exposed to your judgment any longer. It's covered by the blood of the Lamb. We are so grateful. If you, Lord, kept a record of my sin, I would be in the dust. 
but you saved me and gave me your son's righteousness, and I'm so grateful. Take a moment as your head and heart is bowed before we take these elements. If you're not a Christian, if you're not sure that you've received the love of the truth, Jesus is the truth, so as to be saved, ask him to save you right now. He is a prayer away. But the Bible does say to turn from your sin, to repent of it. You could say something like this, Lord, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you. I've done it my own way. I've swam in the consequences of that. But thank you that Jesus came to rescue me and die for me. I repent of my sin. I ask you. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Please save me. Teach me to follow you all the days of my life. If you're a prodigal and you've wandered away and you've ended up in the mud pit and you want to come home, you can come home right now. Just say, Father, forgive me. You know, the prodigal couldn't even get his speech out because the father hugged him and loved him. He had always loved him and God loves you. And I would just say, come home. Wherever you may be, wherever you may be watching, come home. Just say, Father, forgive me. I want to... I want to be in right standing with you and he'll cleanse you and he'll give you a new start, a new beginning. Thank you, Lord. And as we now remember your pierced body and your shed blood, we give you thanks for the price of our redemption. In Jesus' name. I'm trying to find where I put my elements. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, you guys, hold on a second. I had you guys do this solo one of the first Sundays. We had our little package, and I'm not sure it's as precious as us doing it together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we remember you. We thank you. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. Bless your people. Fill them with strength and hope. Help us remember our champion is coming greater than any power in this universe. Thank you that you have saved us unto life and that more abundantly. Thank you that our future is bright even though the days right now can be hard. And we have a lot of days to be thankful for, especially in this country. And we praise you for the church. I am so blessed by this precious group of people. Keep them strong. Bless their households. Extend your hand to those who need a miracle today. We love you, Lord. And we ask that in Jesus' name.